Well, on Sunday mornings, we have been going verse by verse uh, through Luke's gospel together. In fact, this morning, that would have us uh, in Luke chapter 19. We just finished the 18th chapter. I encourage you to read ahead in chapter 19. We'll pick up next week there with the study of uh, Jesus' calling upon the life of Zacchaeus. But this morning, as we're just turning our hearts, celebrating uh, the Christmas holiday and what it means to us that God sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to, to be born of a virgin, to live sinlessly, to die sacrificially on our behalf and to raise again so that we might have the hope of eternal life beyond uh, this world. We want to take some time this morning and just focus our attention on the biblical narrative uh, of Christmas. Uh, and you'll see as we study the Word of God, as we look at Matthew's account, and, and again, we know Luke's account there uh, in chapters 1 and 2, you know, quite honestly, our Western perspective of uh, Christmas is much too of a romantic, uh, cozy kind of an idea. Uh, the biblical narrative shows us a whole different story uh, of what was taking place in the events of God sending his son, uh, Jesus Christ, in this world. If I were God, I would have sent my son into this world to the absolute best hospital with the best OBGYN and pediatric staff on hand uh, and to the most wise and intelligent and experienced parents that were on the face of the earth at that time. And God did quite the opposite, didn't he? He, he sent his son to two frightened godly teenagers, completely inexperienced, what looked like a public scandal of what was going on and allowed him to be born in a rather poor family and the very son of God to be placed in a feeding trough with animal saliva and bacteria and quite different than what we might expect. But no doubt God was doing it. So who in the world should feel uncomfortable coming to Jesus when you realize that's how humble and approachable he is. The biblical narrative is, is quite different. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to actually Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And if you do need a Bible, lift up your hand. We'd love for you to follow along God's Word. Just hold your hand up. There are some guys coming up the aisle, and they'd be happy to give you a copy of the Scriptures so you can follow along in the biblical narrative this morning as we study God's Word. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 18 down through verse 25. Matthew 1.18. And if you're turned there, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Scripture as I read God's Word for this morning's Bible study. Matthew 1, again, beginning in verse 18 tells us now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit then Joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly but while he thought about these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from the sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And Father, help us now as we continue to worship as we sang and, and prayed and, Lord, as we open now the word of God, we want to continue in an attitude of worship by just having an open heart and an open mind that, Lord, we would want to hear what you as the God of heaven would speak to us personally. 
Lord, we're seeking to draw near to you. Draw near to us now through your word. Take away the distractions and everything in our lives, Lord, that would cause our attention to be anywhere other than wanting to hear what you would want to say personally to us. Lord, would you bless your word this morning, anoint and speak to us by your spirit in this hour. For we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it has often been said before that if our greatest need were for health, that God would have sent to us a physician. And if our greatest need were for money, then God probably would have sent to us an economist. And if our greatest need were for knowledge, then God probably would have sent to us perhaps a scientist. Or maybe if our greatest need were for happiness, then God probably would have sent to us an entertainer or maybe a therapist. But the truth of the matter is, whether we recognize it or admit it or not, our greatest need is for forgiveness. And that's the reason why God sent to us a Savior. And in front of us this morning, in the passage we're reading, we have one of the biblical accounts that gives to us the record of how God sent salvation to us that we might experience the forgiveness of our sins. We have here in Matthew's account his birth record of Jesus Christ. Look with me again back in the 18th verse. Matthew tells us in his account here, now the birth of Jesus Christ, he says, was as follows. So he says, this is my account, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So as the Spirit of God is giving us the account through Matthew's pen, notice the events of Jesus' birth begin during the time, it says, when his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now betrothal in that day in the ancient culture in Israel was much like our engagement period today, only it was a lot more binding. It was a lot more technical. And in order to fully understand the betrothal period, you almost have to pause for a minute and consider the Jewish marriage ceremony and arrangements the way their customs were. First of all, marriages among the Jewish culture in that day, as is in still some cultures today, marriages were arranged. In other words, because of the understanding of marriage being a willing commitment of two people who choose to commit themselves together and to remain together and to live together and to stay together for better, for worse, as we say, till death do us part in sickness and health. Because of this understanding that marriage is a willing commitment two people make to one another, because of that reason... Marriages were not left to be determined by the young person's emotional whims or romantic infatuation. Though these things are wonderful and have their part, they did not leave marriage relationships to be determined by just infatuation and romantic attraction that would happen between young people. Instead, parents were deeply involved in the decision-making process of the marriage relationship, if not completely in charge altogether of who their son or daughter would be put together with to live out this lifelong commitment. Marriages were arranged. Now, having three daughters myself and watching the course of how many marriages go, I kind of like the idea. I wouldn't be totally upset if our American culture drew a little bit of this back in. I like the idea of being able to be involved to determine who my child might be married to and to make sure that they understood the realities of marriage and, and what it entails. So in that day, understand, as we're looking at this, marriages were arranged. And as marriages were arranged, the parents, you know, for example, might determine, hey, look, we're really enjoying you know, getting together and, and playing you know, Uno on Saturday nights and you have a son about the same general age as my daughter and you know, if we want to fish together on the weekends and keep this thing going, well, if we put Johnny with Sally, this, this wouldn't be a bad thing. So they would make an arrangement and at a certain point when the children were of age, typically a girl was between 14 to 16 
The young man would be around usually uh, 16 to 18, a little bit older. They would then enter into what was called the betrothal period formally. And it was established by the groom's marital declaration as he before witnesses would declare his intentions to take this young girl to be his wife. And then it was sealed by the exchange of rings or some type of a gift and the payment of a dowry for his bride. Again, as a father of a daughter, I like that. Because, oh boy, you would imagine how high that dowry would be. So this would begin officially this betrothal period, this engagement period, and then there was the betrothal period, a one-year time. That's typically customarily how long it was. And for that one-year period, they were then considered, from the moment of betrothal, they were considered legally married in the eyes of the people in the land. However, they did not yet live together and they did not consummate the marriage physically until the end of the betrothal period after the wedding feast about a year or so later. It was at that point then they would come together, celebrated a marriage feast, and then the couple would consummate the marriage at that point. Uh, they were legally, however, considered married through the entire betrothal period. That's why you notice in our reading in verse 19, though they were only betrothed, verse 19, Joseph is already called, what, Mary's husband. Because that's how official it was in the eyes of the people. They were considered legally married, and it was considered binding. They had just not yet consummated the marriage physically at that point. So, so binding was it, in fact, that during the betrothal time, if one of the parties died, the other person was considered a widow. Or if you wanted to get out of the betrothal relationship, you actually had to obtain an official certificate of divorce. So they would be living separately during this one-year engagement period. The husband would go off and he would begin to prepare a place for his bride and he would make preparations, working responsibly, building an addition on the, the, the back end typically of the father's home where then eventually when the preparations were ready, he then would come and he would snatch away his bride. He would pick up his bride and bring her back to live and dwell together with him. The bride, her responsibility really was to be preparing herself personally and that one year period in that culture was also intended to be a time whereby she validated her purity and her virginity. That it was evident that she had preserved herself and was preparing herself for her husband. Now, it's during this time period of this betrothal that we get in Luke's or, or Matthew's account here this interesting insight where it says that his mother was betrothed to Joseph, notice, but before they came together, they're only betrothed, it says here that she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did that transpire? Well, Luke fills in the details for us in his account Luke tells us that an angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. That virgin's name was Mary and the angel Gabriel said, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? In other words, she's saying, I've never been with a man sexually. I've, I've never been with a man. How could this be possible? You're telling me that I'm going to become impregnated and conceive a child. And the angel answered and said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So as they're in the midst of this betrothal period, living separately, the angel Gabriel shows up with this divine visitation and informs Mary that God has chosen her, this young Jewish teenage girl at this time, that she had been chosen to be the birth mother of the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer and the Deliverer that God had promised. And that the way that that was going to happen would be totally miraculous that though she was still a virgin, that God through a supernatural means by his Holy Spirit coming upon her life and power was going to miraculously cause her to conceive the very life of the Son of God in her womb. And that God through a miraculous conception of pregnancy would allow, apart from any sexual union, through a miraculous conception would allow the life of his Son Jesus Christ who had been eternally existent together with him 
to be conceived in the womb of this virgin woman so that it says she was with child of the Holy Spirit. So this miraculous conception that then leads to what the Bible teaches is of a literal virgin birth, which permitted, therefore, God to enter into humanity in the flesh so that Jesus Christ could be fully God and yet fully man simultaneously at the exact same time. All of this wonderful privilege. Every Jewish girl craved and desired to have the privilege to be the mother of the Messiah, of the Jewish Redeemer for Israel. However, though this was a great privilege for Mary spiritually, take note how that would have created a huge problem for this engaged teenage girl circumstantially. Can you just begin to fathom? Keep in mind, at first, Mary is the only one informed about this very special pregnancy that has just taken place in her life. That's why verse 18 uses the language it does. It says, verse 18, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Take note of that. She's in this engagement betrothal period, this pure little virgin teenage girl ready to be married to Joseph. And all of a sudden now she's found to be with child. She's discovered to be pregnant. Imagine the events. Here's this young, godly teenage girl. No doubt she was probably very well respected in the synagogue. She's engaged. Everyone's excited and everyone's celebrating and ready for this new marriage. And then all of a sudden, Mary begins to show. All of a sudden, that baby bump starts to happen. And can you imagine... As this progresses, the stares of the people in the synagogue towards Mary. Is that a bump on Mary's belly? She's never been prone to gain weight. And as they, that's a baby bump. And imagine the stares, seriously, imagine the stares in the synagogue towards Mary. Imagine the stigma and the conversations that began to develop about this young Jewish teenage girl who was known to be so pure and so godly in the eyes of the people and maybe even some of the whispering that started going on and perhaps somebody ultimately you know how people are somebody eventually got brazen enough to ask all right mary tell us the truth who is it who's the father just deal with it mary tell us bring it into the light who's the father and mary the holy spirit I mean, can you imagine how ludicrous this sounds and how abnormal this seems as, as Mary's telling the truth about what's happening and eventually poor Joseph, ultimately he finds out, eventually he finds out that she's pregnant and imagine the hurt it would cause him. Imagine the embarrassment and the shame and the things that would be going through his mind and the conversation as he has to at some point approach Mary and to ask her, Mary, what's going on? And, and the heartbreak and the challenge that he would be dealing with. All of this, would you agree? Take note. It looks pretty scandalous. This looks very suspicious. There's no explanation going on. The only person that knows about this pregnancy at first is Mary herself. And just the story that she's telling, which sounds very unusual to anyone else who would talk to her, this Christmas did not seem like it was getting off to the best start, if you catch my drift. Yet it was exactly on course with the plan of God and what God had intended. Well, Joseph at this point, without his consent, has been thrust into a very difficult situation to deal with. It says, verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to, to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. So here's Joseph. This guy's crushed. He's disappointed, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed. And now he's facing these circumstances that he had nothing to do with and for all practical purposes outwardly, it looks like Mary has committed adultery. It looks like that she's done something inappropriate. And Joseph's now forced with trying to pick up the pieces and he loves Mary deeply and imagine how ashamed he feels. Imagine how betrayed. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment. He hasn't read the rest of the story, okay? He didn't get a chance to read Luke's gospel. 
He didn't get a chance to read the rest of Matthew's gospel. Joseph's just living this out. And he's just found the love of his life who he's engaged to is now pregnant. And he's hearing this testimony that sounds rather peculiar that she's trying to convey to him. And you know that he was struggling with things like confusion. And and he felt betrayed. And he felt wounded deeply by everything that was going on. And you can picture him praying, saying, God, how could this happen? I just, this doesn't seem like Mary and God. How could you let this happen to us? God, why would you let this happen in our lives? Everything was so wonderful. God, if you're a God of love, why would you let this horrible, difficult situation come into our lives? What did we do to deserve this? And you can picture Joseph wrestling through all those emotions and according to the law... Deuteronomy 24 tells us that he has complete grounds for divorce at this point. That's why it says here he was contemplating what to do to put her away indicates to to divorce her, to separate from her because of the adulterous appearance of this whole thing. And Joseph could have had her, according to custom, drug out to the city square and stoned to death publicly in front of everyone in the society if he chose to. He had that right as a betrothed husband because of the adulterous appearance of what was taking place. Yet Joseph, it says, was a just man, means he was a godly man. He was a righteous man, and therefore, notice that he wanted to deal with the situation by exercising God's mercy. It says, being a just man, he was minded to put her away secretly. No doubt he paused, he sought God, and in his heart, Joseph believed the right thing to do was not to punish her vindictively or to punish her spitefully, nor to humiliate her in front of everyone in the society. Instead, he wanted to handle the situation quietly and with compassion. Joseph wanted to show her God's mercy. He still wanted to honor her above his own feelings. And you know if you were Joseph, you would be wrestling really hard with some feelings within. The thoughts in your mind, the hurt that you were feeling. But Joseph did not want to respond to Mary according, listen, according to the way he felt. Joseph wanted to respond to Mary according to the way that he believed that God would have him respond in the situation that he was dealing with. Joseph here does not just let loose his feelings. Honestly, Joseph denied his feelings and said, you know what, what is the way that despite what has happened and how hurt I feel, that I can still take the high road and I can honor her despite how hurt I'm really feeling right now. And he seeks to do the honorable thing despite how hurt and wounded he was personally. And I'll tell you something. Listen, that is a great model that the Bible sets before us with Joseph, especially during this Christmas season. I don't know what the past year has been like for you, but potentially even in this last year or recently, somebody has done something to you that is extremely hurtful. Maybe it was something that was said or some circumstance or or something that was done that really wounded you deeply hurt you and left a real painful gaping wound in your soul and and someone has really wounded you and your feelings are screaming all kinds of things and you're dealing with confusion you're dealing with the frustration and the pain of everything and the question becomes this no matter who it is that's wounded you or how they've wounded you the question simply becomes this as it was for joseph but how are you going to respond how are you going to respond because you have a choice You can respond the way that you feel or you can respond the way that God prefers. See, I don't know about you, but I have found in my life, my flesh loves revenge. The Spirit of God directs me to show love and restraint. My flesh, oh, loves revenge. You poke me in one eye, I want to poke out both your eyes. My flesh loves revenge. That's my feelings. That's the way I want to respond. When something happens to me, retaliation is natural. And and my flesh wants to respond vindictively and spitefully to bite and devour people verbally and to just give out twice as much as was given to me. But the Spirit of God, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, the Spirit of God says, look, I know your flesh wants revenge, but the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and peace, and patience, and gentleness, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. 
And the flesh says, revenge. The spirit says, no, restraint. Love. Show restraint. Use self-control. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 19, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. Ephesians 4 says to us, In verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness, wrath, anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, you're going to see people over this holiday season that maybe you haven't seen in a while and you may see some people who you got some real angst in your heart with. You may be exposed to people or some things, quite honestly, Forewarning, you're going to go through the holiday festivities. It is very likely that somebody in the midst of it is going to do something that's going to annoy you or hurt you or maybe wound you. You know, we have families, they're dysfunctional, divorces involved, and it is very easy, even through the holiday season, with all the joy to the world, for people to get hurt and wounded and angered. Listen. How are you going to respond? Joseph is a fantastic example because as he dealt with something that was very painful personally and he didn't have all the details, he chose, because he was a just man, he chose to take the high road. And he chose to do the honorable thing. It says that he was pondering, what do I do? How do I deal with this? And he said, you know what? I'm not going to make a big issue of this. I'm going to overlook this. As he was minded, he was going to try and just quietly divorce her rather than humiliate her. He thought, I'm going to honor her over myself. And in love, I'm going to do the right thing here. And what a great example and testimony that is because many of us are maybe dealing with difficult things over the past year and many of us may deal with something that may be painful or difficult even with this holiday season. And Joseph's life is a great example. So as Joseph, he's planning how to deal with this the best way he could. It tells us in verse 20 that while he thought about these things, he's thinking about how to go about this, thinking I need to just quietly divorce her and I'm just I'm, I'm going to try and walk away in love the best that I can. While he thought about these things, notice, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So as Joseph's pondering and praying through this, rather than just reacting right away, he's trying to reconcile, how do I deal with this dilemma? And while he's doing that, it says God intervenes. Before he makes his decision, God intervenes, gives him a dream, and the angel of the Lord appears to him, and it was probably, my, my opinion, it was probably Gabriel. The same angel who had appeared to Mary and given her the birth announcement, he probably now pays a visit to Joseph and says, Joseph, ho, 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 slow down here. Joseph, what you're looking at from your perspective and you're thinking this is a major human dilemma, dilemma, Joseph, honestly, honestly, this this is like a heavenly design, Joseph. Joseph, what you think is a big problematic thing that you're facing right now, this is actually God's plan. This is the plan of God, Joseph. Interesting that notice he is called and addressed by the angel of the Lord, what? Son of David. Joseph, son of David. Joseph, remember who you are? Your lineage is royal. Joseph, remember the Messiah is supposed to come through the family line of David, Joseph. Remember that? Remember Joseph? Joseph, son of David, he says. That which is conceived in Mary, he's told here, Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for what is conceived in her, it says, is of the Holy Spirit. So he is told, don't be afraid. Joseph, keep going forward with this marriage. Though no one else understands, Joseph, what she told you is true. And despite how it appears, Joseph, this is all right in line with God's will. Mary has been chosen to be the birth mother, physically, of the Savior and Deliverer, and Joseph, son of David, you have been chosen to be the custodian as the stepfather of the Son of God by being married to Mary and being a stepfather to Jesus Christ. Despite how it looks, Joseph, though this is not what you have planned, 
and it's not what you expected, I'm certain. Nonetheless, it is what God has planned and you need to recognize it by faith alone and you need to receive it and respond to it because Joseph, it wasn't what you planned, but this is God's thing. Joseph, don't be afraid. That which is conceived is of the Holy Spirit. And see, I don't know, but perhaps this is something as well that may be helpful to apply as we go through the Christmas season. Because potentially you're here this morning and something will happen unexpectedly. And it wasn't what you planned. It's not going the way you planned. You had a plan. And lo and behold, it's not going the way that you planned. And now you've got to be flexible. And that's frustrating when it's not going the way you planned and there's some change of plans and now things are going different than the way you expected. Listen, perhaps the word of the Lord to you this morning as you watch things unfold, maybe not the way you expected, is that the Lord would say to you, listen, relax. This is conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is birthing and bringing about what's happening and Jesus is right in the center of this whole thing. If you would just relax and flow with it. Maybe what's happening is birthed of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's conceived of the Spirit of God himself and it's right in line with God's will and Jesus is in the middle of it all and he's saying, listen, will you with faith just flow with it? Just flow with it. Relax. Allow God to do what he's doing. We may not understand. The Bible tells us that his ways are not our ways. They're higher than ours. And in the same way, this was conceived of the Holy Spirit and Joseph, by faith, had to recognize and respond to it. Sometimes the Spirit of God conceives things and it's right in the center of God's will and Jesus is right in the middle of the whole thing and we need to be willing to respond to what God's doing and trust that God has a plan and a purpose in exactly what is taking place around us. Well, the message for Joseph went forward saying to him, Joseph, listen, it's conceived of the Holy Spirit and Mary's going to bring forth a son, he says, and you should call his name Jesus. Why? He says, for he shall save his people from their sins. Call his name Jesus. The word Jesus, when you translate it, simply means Jehovah is salvation. And it's a perfect description of exactly what Jesus would come for. That Jehovah God was entering into our world to provide salvation. One of the primary purposes for Jesus' birth and coming was to offer God's forgiveness. Notice, Joseph is told directly, call his name Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Again, when the Bible uses the word sins, it's harmatia in the Greek. It literally means to miss the mark. That's where the term comes from, to miss the mark. It was a term that was used in archery where there would be a, a, a hoop that was set on a pole at a distance away and archers would seek to fire their arrows through that hoop that was at a certain distance away. And as they shot, whenever they missed the mark, someone would yell out harmatia or sin. You've missed the mark, which shows something that you can be a sinner even if you're not trying to because you can take the best, you know, the most in incredibly gifted archer who may hit nine out of ten times, but guess what? Eventually, everybody's going to what? Miss. Everybody's going to miss. And the word sin literally means to just miss the mark, which means that you and I are going to commit sin even if we don't want to commit sin. We're all going to miss the mark. Everybody fails. Everybody slips once in a while. Every human being, the Bible says, there's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We can try and try and try. Some of us may hit nine out of ten times and be pretty impressed with ourselves. Don't be. Because if you miss the mark, you're a failure like everybody else. Other people, you may fail like, you know what? I hit the mark once and I missed the other nine times. Don't be depressed. You're a failure just like everyone else. The Bible says we all sin. There's no difference. We all sin. We all fall short of the standard of God's glory, which is perfection. And because of that, that's one of the reasons Jesus had to come, that God is so loving 
knowing that we're all sinful and we all miss the mark, God made a way for our sins to be forgiven. He doesn't want us to be separated from him eternally. He doesn't want us to suffer in hell and the torment that we deserve for our sins against a holy and righteous God. And he doesn't want our sins to destroy us as we live in a pattern of sin because of the effects of, li of sinful living. That's why Jesus declared in John 3.16, and it's the verse probably more than any of us on this earth know, that's why Jesus declared, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. John tells us in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen, at this time of year, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the sending of God's Son, Jesus, into our world to rescue. That's what a Savior does. He rescues people. That God sent His Son, Jesus, and He came to be born as a little humble baby. But listen, that little humble baby grew up and lived a life as a man, and he lived sinlessly, the Bible tells us. He did what I can't do, and he did what you can't do. He never missed the mark. He never missed. He was the perfect mediator between a holy God and really sinful men. Jesus lived the sinless life. He accomplished the righteous, perfect requirement that's mandated to be with a holy, righteous, perfect God. And then after living out the sinless life that we can as a man, he then stepped into our place. And he allowed himself to be crucified for our sins. And he took the punishment that we deserve as the guilty ones. He absorbed all the guilt as he died on the cross for us and shed his blood for our sins as the payment for our sins. And then he, taking all the guilt, said, Here, I'll take the guilt and you take my innocence so that you can stand in the presence of my heavenly Father through my innocence and my righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible says, so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. It's the great exchange. Jesus says, you give me all your sin, because I know you're a sinner, and since I'm a Savior, I'm going to give you my righteousness and my holiness so that if you receive it, you can be forgiven and stand in the presence of God. So Jesus dies sacrificially. He raises the third day triumphantly, overcoming the power of death. And now Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. He entered this world. He accomplished salvation. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is alive. And guess what he wants to do? He wants to save people from their sins. He wants to save you from your sins. But you have to admit that you're a sinner and acknowledge that you need to be saved. That's all God's looking for. Not for you to do anything. If we could do something, God wouldn't have sent Jesus. There's nothing for us to do but to believe it by faith in what Jesus did for us and to receive it. We have to be willing to admit we're a sinner and to say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sins. Save me from my sins and the penalty that they deserve. Well, Mary and Joseph found out that this Jesus, the son of David, was going to come, it says, and to call his name God is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. And this morning, if you have no other reason to celebrate Christmas, by golly, listen to me, you have a reason to celebrate Christmas. Because Jesus saved you from your sins if you've asked him to save you from their sins. And if you have no other reason you think to celebrate Christmas, listen, let me give you a reason. Do you want a gift? It's the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ask Jesus to save you from your sins. And the light bulb will go on, and you'll find a reason not to be crabby and miserable, but to celebrate with joy Christmas. Because you'll realize Jesus has saved you from your sins by inviting him to do that in your life. Well, look at verse 22. The story goes on to tell us, so all this was done, all the events, to be fulfilled, what was spoken through the Lord, through the prophet, saying, Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Emmanuel translated, he tells us, is God with us. So all these events, astonishing and rather peculiar the way they unfolded on earth, were, they were, they were all perfectly in line, everything that happened, perfectly in line to fulfill all the predictions that God made about the Messiah when he came into the world. We said just last week, over 300 plus prophecies or predictions of the first coming of Jesus. His birth, his life, his ministry, things about him, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them with 100% accuracy. It's a scientific miracle. And it just validates that this book that we're holding this morning is 100% accurate and has impeccable credibility. This, not some Mayan calendar on the 21st, oh, it's really windy, the world's going to come to an end. Here we are. Listen, the only thing that has 100% accuracy is the pages of what you're holding in your lap this morning. And if you want something to build your life on, build your life on this. Because Jesus already fulfilled all those prophecies in his first coming and everything else written in this book, it will come to pass, including his second coming, which is soon to take place when Jesus returns to this earth in a very short time, given the days that we're living in. So God was fulfilling, it says, prophecy in all these things, and that's what this is a reference to. It says all this happened, that it might be translated, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, verse 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That was a prophecy from over 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever born. 700 years prior to that, Isaiah the prophet said a virgin would conceive a miracle and that a son would be born and that that son would actually be Emmanuel, would be God coming to be with us and living among us. This is what we call the incarnation. It's a big word that refers to the time where God revealed and dwelt among us in human flesh. That God himself being deity added to his nature humanity. It's not man becoming God, it's God becoming man entering into this world and coming in a body of flesh to live among us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh. That God came to be with us. And here you see another purpose for Jesus' coming, not just to provide forgiveness of sins. That's a great purpose. But another purpose we see that Jesus came was to offer us fellowship with God. Because what is one of the names given to Jesus? Emmanuel, which is translated, this is what Emmanuel means. I have it underlined in my Bible. You should underline it in your Bible or the person next to you if you want to underline it in their Bible. If they don't, you can do it. But look what it says, God with us. You see those three words? God with us. That's another purpose why Jesus entered into this world because God wants to be with us. Now, Sometimes we may not want God to be with us, but guess what? The Bible says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell, thou art there. God's with us. His presence is with us, but in an incredible way. God came to be with us as he came to this earth and he walked among us. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the heart of God, listen, the heart of God was to come and be with us. I'll tell you one reason, because God wanted this, us to see what he's really like. We have really crazy ideas about what God's like. Maybe something that we just have come up with or we've seen certain examples. We were raised in a particular church tradition and we have this perspective of what God is like. And Jesus came to this earth and he lived among us as God in the flesh so that we can look at Jesus and say, no, that's what God's really like. He exposes religious hypocrites. Jesus was hard on religious hypocrites. He exposes phonies who are just trying to steal people's money. He comes and he shows how God loves children. Jesus would take them and hold them and, and, and cuddle them and spend time with them. That's what God's like. That, and, and to see what God is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. 
God came that he might be with us and reveal himself to us and God came to be with us so he could be accessible and available. That's always been the center of the heart of God. In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, it says that God and Adam walked together in fellowship. God's always wanted to be with us. Enoch walked with God. When they built the tabernacle, it tells us in Exodus chapter 25 that God said, let them make a sanctuary so that I may dwell with them. God always has wanted to be with us. God desires to be in our presence and that we would want him to be with us. And ultimately, in the fullest sense, God was with us in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, God was literally with us. God, hear me, does not primarily want something from us. It's a crazy misconception that we develop. God wants something from us. What does he want from us? When people walk into their church, they hold their wallet. Listen, God doesn't want anything from you. Bye-bye read says that God's all-sufficient. God doesn't want something from you. He doesn't want a religious life. He doesn't want you to observe a list of do's and don'ts. And quite honestly, you know, God's not even you know, necessarily wanting you to just show up and visit him on the holidays at a Christmas and Easter. So God, God wants something. I'll, I'll show up and visit him once or twice a year. No, God doesn't want something from you. God wants to give something to you. You know what he wants to give you? Himself. Himself. His life. God wants to give himself to you. His presence through the person of Jesus Christ. Through an intimate relationship whereby you come to Jesus as saving Lord. God wants to be with us presently. God wants to be involved in your everyday life. He wants to be with you. Do you want him to be with you? That's the choice we all have to make. But God wants to be with you now in everyday life and he wants to be with you eternally forever and ever the bible tells us in first john 5 this is the testimony god has given us eternal life and that life is in his son he who has the son has life he who does not have the son does not have life these things i've written to you who believe in the name of the son of god listen that you may know that you have eternal life and continue to believe in the name of the son of god do you hear what john says he says, that you may know that you have eternal life. I talk to people on occasion, and maybe you do too, and you say, do you know if you're going to heaven? They say, I hope so. Listen, do you know the Bible says you can know? You don't have to hope so. You can know that you have eternal life. The Bible reduces it to this. It says, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life isn't in the church. Eternal life isn't in, eternal life is in Jesus. It's his life. He is the eternally existent God. So if you have Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you have eternal life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, the Bible simply says, you don't have eternal life. Eternal life hinges on Jesus. It's what you do with Jesus, who is God wanting to be with you as you embrace him, invite him in to be a part of your life. Well, look how our account closes. It says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him Mary his wife, and did not know her, that is sexually or intimately, until she had brought forth her firstborn son. So again, notice, the Bible knows nothing of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Bible says that she remained a virgin until Jesus was born, but Joseph did not know her until she conceived her firstborn son. They went on to have natural children afterward as any married couple. So Joseph, it says, took her home and she brought forth her firstborn son and they called his name Jesus. So here's Joseph. This whole event happens. The angel speaks to him and says, Joseph, th this is of God. Don't be afraid. Take Mary home. This is conceived of the Spirit. Believe it. Respond to it. And Joseph now has had the word of the Lord spoken directly to his heart. Through a, a messenger, an angelic messenger, God has given the word of the Lord to Joseph and he now has a choice. He has to respond to what the Lord has spoken to him. Joseph, hard as it probably was, made the wide choice where he said, you know what? That's going to be awful difficult, but I believe it's true. And therefore, it says he took Mary home to be his wife. And in so doing, as a result of responding to the word of the Lord, what did Joseph do? 
Joseph invited Jesus to become a part of his everyday life because Jesus at that point was in the womb of his wife, Mary. And by Joseph responding in faith, he experienced the life of Jesus and invited Jesus into his life. And the same applies for us. Once we know that God has spoken to us, once you know God has spoken to you and you can tell, I, I've been there so many times. I remember the very first time I knew God was speaking to me. And I could tell he was knocking and knocking and knocking. And, but the doorknob's on the inside. But once you know the Lord has spoken to you, you have to choose to believe and respond. Spiritual truth is not something to just say, yeah, that's interesting. Or I, spiritual truth is something to be responded to. You receive it or you reject it. There's really only two options. Joseph had the word of the Lord. He had to decide what to do. Joseph decided to believe and respond, and as a result, he invited the life and presence of Jesus into his own life as an individual. And in the same way, you know what? If we respond in faith, we can invite the life of Jesus into our world, into our life. Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now and what the past year has been. I know Christmas is a time of celebration, but for some of you, it may be a real difficult time. You're grieving the loss of a loved one. You're going through something hard right now. But listen, God is with you. And you can have God with you as you go through that. And if you're here this morning and you have never invited God to be a part of your life, can I just encourage you, the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive is right on the tip of your tongue this morning. If all you will do is say yes to Jesus and to invite him into your life. Father, we thank you for your word and for how it speaks to our hearts. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would just prompt us in greater ways to open our hearts and our lives to Jesus. Thank you, God, that you came to this earth to be with us. And Father, forgive me for the times when I shut you out of my life. When because of my actions or attitude, I turn away Jesus and his involvement in my life. Lord, help me to have a greater openness to the life of Jesus. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Help them as well to open their lives, to open their homes, their everyday experience. Help them to open themselves to Jesus in a greater way than ever before. And Father, if there be any here among us who've never accepted Jesus, I pray this morning that you'd give them the faith, the desire, and the willingness to turn back to you, or Lord, for the first time, to turn to you and to invite you in to their life personally. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.